0: Open Sci Fi Episode 3, recorded on April 28th, 2007. Hello and welcome to another week of Open Sci Fi. We are having problems with getting this podcast into MP3 format, so if you are listening to this, any help would be appreciated. As always, I'd love to hear from you whether you have a comment or news article, book request, if I get enough of these, I may start doing more podcasts each week, or anything else. Remember, I'm at B-I-L-L-Y-B-O-B 1091 at yahoo.com I'm now on burner, and my feed is http tbol3 at wordpress.com slash feed If you get a if you want to get this episode in other formats, you can go to the archive page, http://www.archive.org/slash details/slash open sci-fi. Open sci-fi is all one word. I would also like to change this podcast to a Creative Commons attribute share-alike license. Uh, this way we can use more things on the podcast. If any of you have any comment, just email me. Remember, it's billybob Bob 1091s Ray Boyer and Paul Kenny say that they have seen not one, but two UFOs. These are two different pilots on two different planes. John Spencer, head of British UFO Research Association, says this is always happening. Uh, now, although this is probably not true, it's cool to think about. Uh, this has been retrieved from the WikiNews. Uh, Novel Loss is a project all about writing novels, but the interesting about it is set up as a wiki, you sign on, but you don't really have to sign up, uh, and you start writing books. I, I actually have submitted a book, Chemical Warfare, which is a big combination of all my favorite books, with a weird twist. Uh, anyway, the site is at http slash wiki mainpage that's http colon slash slash novelos wikia dot com slash wiki slash main page. And now for our final bit of news this week. Scientists have now made, yes made, half a mouse brain. It runs on a supercomputer. It's fairly slow, but scientists are trying to make it faster and more brain-like. But it has the thought patterns of a mouse. So, if they only have half a mouse brain, I really don't think we need to worry about computers taking over the world anytime soon. Uh, by the way, if any of you have a good story, that's public domain or at least creative Commons, then I'd love to put it on the podcast. This has been retrieved from BBC News. And now, on to the Green Odyssey. Alan Green, a slave stuck on an alien planet, wants to get off. He has made plans. He will escape in a boat and fly away with two other pilots. But wait, here you will see what happens in today's episode Escapee or Dead Slave Stew.
1: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson, San Jose, California. THE GREEN ODYSSEY BY PHILIP JOSE FARMER CHAPTER SEVEN THROUGH NINE The lesser moon had touched the western horizon, and the greater was nearing the zenith when Green awoke and jumped to his feet, swearing in sheer terror. He'd fallen asleep, and kept Zuni waiting. "'My God, what'll she say?' he said aloud. "'What'll I tell her?' "'You needn't tell me anything.' came her angry retort from very close by. He started, and whirled around, and saw that she'd been standing behind him. She was wrapped in a robe, but her pale face gleamed from beneath the overhanging hood, and her mouth was opened. White teeth flashed as she began accusing him of not loving her, of being bored by her, of loving some other woman, probably a slave girl, a good-for-nothing, lazy, brainless, emptily pretty wench. If this situation hadn't been so serious, Green would have smiled at her self-portrayal. He tried to damn the flood, but to no avail. She screeched at him to shut up, and when he put his fingers to his lips and said, "'Shh!' she replied by raising her voice even more. "'You know you're not supposed to be out of your rooms after dark unless the Duke is along,' he said, taking her elbow and attempting to steer her down the walk toward the secret door." "'If the guards see you, there'll be trouble—bad trouble. Let's go.' Unfortunately, the guards did see them. Torches appeared at the foot of the steps below the walk, and iron helmets and cuirasses gleamed. Green tried to urge her on faster, for there was still time to make it to the door. She jerked her arm loose and shouted, "'Take your filthy hands off me, you northern slave!' The Duchess of Tropat doesn't allow herself to be pushed around by a blonde beast. "'Damn it!' he snarled and shoved her. "'You stupid Kizmayaz, Get going! You won't be tortured if they find us together!' Zuni jerked away. Her face twisted and her mouth worked soundlessly. Kizmayaz, she finally gasped. ass yourself!' Suddenly she began screaming. Before he could clamp his hand over her mouth, she dashed past him and toward the steps. It was then that he came out of his paralysis and ran, not after her, which he knew was useless, but toward the secret door. All was up. It was absolutely no use trying to explain to the guards. The situation had now entered a conventional phase. She would tell the guards that he had come into her room, through some unknown means, which would be found out later, and had dragged her out onto the walk, apparently with the intention of violating her. Why he should pick a public place when he already had the privacy of her rooms would not be asked, and the guards, though they would know what really had happened, would pretend to believe her and would furiously seize him and drag him off to the dungeons. The absurd thing about it was that within a few days the whole city, including Zuni herself, would believe that her story was true. By the time he'd been executed, they would hate his guts, and the lot of all the slaves would be miserable for a while because they would share his blame. Green had no intention of being seized. Flight was an admission of guilt, but it made no difference now. He ran through the secret door, shut and bolted it, and raced up the steps that led to her apartments. The guards would have had to take the long way round, and he had at least two minutes before they could unlock the two doors of the ante-rooms to her quarters, explain to the guards just outside them what had happened, and begin a search for him. As for him, he was running like a rabbit, but he was thinking like a fox. Having known that such a situation might arise, he had long ago planned in detail several possible courses of action— Now he chose the likeliest one, and began acting efficiently, if not smoothly. The staircase was a narrow corkscrew with room for only one person at a time to go up. He ran up it so fast that he got dizzy with the ever-winding turns. He reeled and had trouble keeping from falling to his left when he did arrive at its top. Nevertheless, he did not pause to catch breath or balance, but pulled the lever that would make the door swing out. He burst through it. No one there, thank God. He stopped for a moment, listened to make sure nobody was in the next room, then pushed on a boss set in a pattern of bronze protuberances, which was connected with the mechanism that operated the secret door. The section of the wall swung back silently until it was flush with the rest, and quite indistinguishable. He then twisted the knob so the door couldn't be opened from the other side. Green took time to give fervent thanks to the builders of the castle, who had prepared this device for the owners to hide within in case of a successful invasion or revolt. If it had not been there, he could not have escaped. Escaped, Escaped—he'd only put off his inevitable capture. But he intended to run as long as he could, and then fight until they were forced to kill him. The first thing to do was find a weapon. As a matter of fact, he was so familiar with Zuni's rooms that he knew exactly where he could get what he wanted. He walked through two large rooms, making his way easily even through the feeble duskish light that the few oil lamps and candles furnished. Hanging from the wall of the third room was a sabre made of the best steel obtainable on this planet, and fashioned by the greatest smiths, the sword-rights of far-away and almost legendary Talamasco. The blade was a gift from Zuni's father on the occasion of her wedding to the Duke. It was supposed to be given by Zuni to her eldest son, when he came of weapon-carrying age. The hilt had a guard on which was inscribed in gold the motto, Sooner Hell than Dishonor. He fastened the sword and scabbard to an iron ring on his broad leather belt, went to a luxurious dressing-table, pulled open a drawer, and took out a stiletto. This he stuck through his belt also a huge flintlock pistol with a gold and ivory chased butt. He loaded it with powder and an iron ball he found in a compartment and put ammunition in a bag, which he also hung from his belt. Then, well armed, he walked out onto the balcony to take a quick view of the situation. Three stories below him was the walk which he had left a few minutes before. Many soldiers and Zuni were standing there, all looking up, As his face came into sight, visible in the moonlight and the upreaching flares of their torches, a shout arose. Several of the musket men raised their long-barreled weapons, but Zuni cried out for them to hold their fire. She wanted him alive. Green's skin prickled at the vindictiveness in her voice, and at the vision of what she was probably planning for him. He'd been forced to see too many tortures and public executions not to know exactly what she designed for him. Suddenly overcome with rage that she could be so treacherous and brutal, a rage perhaps flavored with self-disgust because he had made love to her, he aimed his pistol at her. There was a click as the hammer struck the flint, a spark, a whoosh as the powder burnt in the pan, a loud bang and a cloud of black smoke. When the fumes cleared away, he saw that everybody, including the Duchess, was running for cover. Naturally, he'd missed— for he had almost no practice with the pistols, being a slave. Even if he'd been well-trained, he probably would not have struck his mark, so inaccurate were the weapons. While Green was reloading, he heard a shout from above. Looking up, he saw the Duke's round face, pale in the moonlight, hanging over the railing of the balcony above. He raised his empty pistol, and the Duke, squalling with fear, ran back into his quarters, Green laughed, and said to himself that even if he was killed now, he could at least have the satisfaction of knowing that he had shamed the Duke, who was always boasting about his bravery in battle. Of course, his action had also made it absolutely necessary for the Duke to have him killed at once, so that Green could not tell others that he'd put him to flight. He grinned crookedly. What would happen when the soldiers received the Duke's orders? directly contradicting the Duchess's. The poor fellows would scarcely know what to do. The man's commands would, of course, supersede the woman's, but the woman would be furious, and she would later on find some means of punishing those who did succeed in killing Green. It was at that moment that he lost his smile and paled with fright. A loud, deep-chested barking nearby. Not outside the apartment's door, but inside. He cursed and whirled around just in time to see the large body launched towards his throat, the white fangs flashing and the green fire shining from its eyes as the moonlight struck them. Even in that moment of panic he realized that he'd forgotten the small door set inside the larger one so that Alzo could have admittance at any time, and if the big dog could get through, then soldiers could also crawl through. Instinctively, he thrust out the pistol and squeezed the trigger. It did not go off, for there was no powder in the pan. But the barrel did jam into the great mouth and deflect Alzo from his target, Green's throat. Even so, Green was knocked backward by the impact, and he felt the sharp teeth clamping down on his wrist. Those jaws were capable of biting through his arm, and though he felt no pain, He was sickened by the thought that he'd see a bloody stump when Alzo danced away from him. However, his arm, though dripping blood from large gashes, was not hurt badly. The dog had been deterred by the barrel shoved down his throat, choking him so that he could think of nothing for the moment but getting clear of it. The pistol clattered on the iron floor of the balcony. Alzo shook his head, unaware in his frenzy that he was rid of the weapon. Green leaped up from the sitting position into which Alzo's charge had flung him against the railing. Snarling as viciously as the dog, he braced his feet against the juncture of the floor and the railing, and launched himself straight out. At the same time, the canine jumped. They met head-on, Green's skull driving into the open mouth, and knocking the dog backward because his impetus was greater. Though the huge jaws bit down at his scalp, they snapped on air and the animal fell to one side, growling. Green seized hold of the long tail, rolled away from the teeth now snapping at his ankles, and jerked at the tail so that the dog would swing away from him. He rose to one knee, pushed the dog away from him, though still keeping his frenzied grip with two hands, and jumped to his feet. Frantically, the animal twisted around and bit at the imprisoning hands. But he succeeded only in biting his own flank— Howling in anguish, he tried to lunge away. Green, making a supreme effort, raised the tail in the air. Naturally, the body came along with it. At the same time he half turned from the animal, bent forward, and, with a convulsive motion, using his bowed back as a lever, threw Alzo over his head. The terrible growling suddenly changed into a high-pitched howl of despair as Alzo flew over the railing and out into the air over the walk. Green, leaning over to watch him, did not feel sorry for him. He was exultant. He'd hated that dog, and had dreamed of just such a moment. Alzo's yelping was cut off as he struck the parapet beside the walk, bounced off, and then dropped from view into the depths beyond. Green's strength had been greater than he'd suspected, for he had thought only to toss the one hundred and fifty-pound beast over the railing. There was no time for savoring triumph. If the dog could get through that little door, so could the soldiers. He ran out into the room, expecting that at least a dozen men had crawled in. But there was no one. Why? The only thing he could think of was that they were afraid— knowing that if he at once dispatched the dog, he could leisurely knock them over the head in their helpless on-all-fours position. The door shook beneath a mighty impact. They'd taken the wiser, if the less courageous, course of battering-rams. Green loaded his pistol, spilling the powder at his first attempt to prime the pan, because his hands shook so. He fired, and a large hole appeared in the wood. However, part of the ball also stuck out, for the door was planked thickly against just such weapons. The battering ceased, and he heard a thud as the ram was dropped on the floor in hasty retreat. He smiled. As they were still operating under the Duchess's instructions to take him alive, not yet countermanded by the Dukes, they would not want to face pistol-fire with only swords in hand. And in the first reflex to the shot— they had undoubtedly forgotten that a ball couldn't penetrate the wood. "'This is living,' said Green out loud. And he wondered that his voice shook as much as his legs did. And yet he felt a wild exultance shooting through his fear, and knew that he was tasting both with a fine liking. Perhaps, he thought, he really liked this moment, even if his death was around the corner." because he'd been repressed so long, and violence was a wonderful therapy for releasing his resentment and clamp down on fury. Whatever the reason, he knew that this was one of the high moments of his life, and that if he survived, he'd look back on it with pleasure and pride. And that was the strangest thing of all, since in his culture the young were taught to abhor violence." Luckily, they weren't so conditioned against it that the very thought of it paralyzed them. No hard neural pass had been set up against the action of violence. It was just that, philosophically speaking, they loathed the concept. Fortunately, there was a philosophy of the body, too, a much older and deeper one. And while it was true that man could no more live without philosophy of the mind than he could without bread, it had no place in green at present." fiery breath that flooded his body now, and made him so sensitive to what a fine thing it was to be alive while death was knocking at the door, did not rise from any mental abstraction or profound meditation. Green rolled back the carpets that led from the room to the balcony, for he wanted a firm footing if it became necessary to make a running broad jump from the balcony, in an effort to clear the walk below and drop into the moat he'd have to have very good timing and do everything just right the first time, like a parachute jump, otherwise he'd end up with broken bones on the hard stones below. Not that he was going to make that leap unless he just had to, but he was leaving an avenue open if his other measures didn't work. Again he ran to the Bureau, and drew out a large bag of gunpowder, weighing at least five pounds. In the open end of this he inserted a fuse, and tied the neck around it. While he was doing this, he heard shouts and cheers as the soldiers returned to the door, picked up their ram, and hurled themselves at the thick planking. He did not bother shooting again, but instead lit the fuse with a candle. Then he walked to the large door, pushed out the small dog's door, and tossed the bag through it. He jumped back and ran, though there was little chance that the resultant explosion would harm the door." There was a silence as the soldiers were probably staring paralyzed at the smoking fuse. Then a roar. The room shook, the door fell in, blasted off its hinges, and black smoke poured in. Green ran into the cloud, got down on all fours, scuttled through the doorway, cursed desperately when the hilt of his sword caught on the door frame, tore loose, and lunged through into the dense smoke that filled the ante-room. His groping hands felt the ram where it had dropped, and the wet, warm face of a soldier who'd fallen. He coughed sharply from the biting fumes, but went on until his head butted into the wall. Then he felt to his right, where he imagined the door was, came to it, passed through and on into the next room, also filled with a cloud. After he'd scuttled like a bug across its floor, he dared to open his eyes for a quick look. The smoke was thinner and was pouring out the door into the hallway, just in front of him. He saw no feet in the clearer area between the floor and the bottom of the clouds, so he rose and walked through the door. To his left, he knew, the hall led to a stairway that was probably now jammed with soldiers. To his right would be another stairway that went up to the Duke's apartments. That was the only way he could go. Luckily, the smoke was still so dense in the corridor that those assembled on the left staircase couldn't see him. They'd think he was in the Duchess's rooms yet, and he hoped that when they did rush it, and didn't find him there, the rolled-back carpets would give them the idea that he'd taken a running broad jump from the balcony. In which case, they'd at once search the moat for him. And if they didn't find him swimming there, as they wouldn't, then they might presume he'd either drowned, or else got to the shore, and was now somewhere in the darkness of the city. He felt along the wall toward the staircase, his other hand gripping the stiletto. When his fingers ran across the arm of a man leaning against the wall, he withdrew them at once, bent his knees, and in a crouching position ran in the general direction of the stairs. The smoke got even thinner here so that he saw the steps in time to avoid falling over them. Unfortunately, the duke and another man were also there. Both saw his figure emerge into the torchlight from the clouds, but he had the advantage of knowing who he was, so that he had plunged the thin stiletto into the soldier's throat before he could act. The duke tried to leap past Green, but the earthman stuck a leg out and tripped him. Then he grabbed the ruler's arm, twisted it behind his back, forced him up and on his knees, and, using the arm as a cruel lever, raised him. He enjoyed hearing the Duke moan, though he'd never consciously take pleasure in pain before. He had time to think that perhaps he liked this because of the torture the Duke had inflicted on his many helpless victims. Of course he, Green, a highly civilized man, shouldn't be feeling this way. But the rightness or wrongness of an emotion never kept anybody from experiencing it. "'Up you go,' he said in a low, harsh voice directing the duke toward his apartments, manipulating the twisted arm as a steering column. By then the smoke had cleared away, so that those at the other end of the corridor could see that something was wrong. A shout arose, followed by the slap of running feet on the stone flags. Green stopped, turned the duke so he faced the approaching crowd, and said to them, "'Tell them that I will kill you unless they go away.' To emphasize his point, he stuck the end of the stiletto into the duke's back and pressed hard enough to draw blood. The duke quivered, then became rigid. Nevertheless, he said, "'I will not do so. That would be dishonor.' Green couldn't help admiring such courage, even if it did make his predicament worse. He refused to kill the duke just then, because that would throw away the only trump card he held at that moment." so he stuck the stiletto in his teeth and, still holding with one hand to the duke's twisted arm, took the duke's pistol from his belt and fired over his shoulder. There was a whoosh of flame that burned the duke's ear and made him give a cry that was almost drowned out in the roar of the explosion. The nearest man threw up his hands, dropped his spear, and fell on his face. The others stopped— Doubtless, they were still operating under the Duchess's orders not to kill Green, for the Duke must have arrived at the foot of the staircase just in time to witness the explosion of the gunpowder. And he was in no condition to issue contrary orders, being deafened and stunned by the report almost going off in his ear. Green shouted out, "'Go back, or I will kill the Duke. It is his wish that you go back to the stairs, and do not bother us until he sends word to you.' By the flickering light of the torches he could see the puzzled expression on the soldiers' faces. It was only then he realized that in his extreme excitement he had shouted the orders in English. Hastily he translated his demands, and was relieved to see them turn and retreat, though reluctantly. He then half dragged the Duke up the steps to his apartments, where he barred the door and primed his pistol again. "'So far, so good,' he said in English. The question is, what now, little man?' The ruler's rooms were even more luxurious than his wife's, and were larger because they had to contain not only the duke's hundreds of hunting trophies, including human heads, but his collection of glass birds. Indeed, one might easily see where his heart really lay, for the heads had collected dust— whereas each and every glittering winged creature was immaculate. It would have gone hard on a servant who neglected his cleaning duties in the great rooms dedicated to the collection. On seeing them, Green smiled slightly. When you're fighting for your life, hit a man where he's softest. It was a matter of two minutes to tie the duke in a chair with several of the hunting-whips hanging from the walls. Meanwhile, the duke came out of his daze. He began screaming every invective he knew—and he knew quite a lot—and promising every refined torture he could think of, and his knowledge was not poverty-stricken in that area, either. Green waited until the duke had given himself a bad case of laryngitis. Then he told him, in a firm but quiet voice, what he intended to do unless the duke got him out of the castle. To emphasize his determination, he picked up a bludgeon studded with iron spikes, and swung it whistling through the air. The duke's eyes widened, and he paled. All of a sudden he changed from a defiant ruler challenging his captor to inflict his worst upon him, to a shrunken, trembling old man. "'And I will smash every last bird in these rooms,' said Green and I will open the chest that lies behind that pile of furs, and take out of it your most precious treasure, the bird you have not even shown to the emperor for fear he would get jealous and demand it as a gift from you, the bird you take out at rare intervals and over which you gloat all night.' "'My wife told you?' gasped the duke. "'Oh, what an is it she is!' "'Granted,' said Green, she babbled to me many secrets, being a feather-brained, idle, silly, stupid female, a fit consort for you. So I know where the unique Exorator statuette, made by Eisen Yushua of Metzva Mouche is hidden. The glass bird that cost the whole dukedom a great tax and brought many bitter tears and hardships from your subjects. I will have no compunction about destroying it, even if it's the only one ever made." and if Aizen Ushua is now dead, so that it can never be replaced. The duke's eyes bulged in horror. "'No, no,' he said in a quavering voice, "'that would be unthinkable, blasphemous, sacrilegious. Have you no sense of beauty, degenerate slave that you are, that you would smash forever that most beautiful of all things made by the hands of man?' I would. The duke's mouth drew down at the corners. Suddenly he was weeping. Green was embarrassed, for he knew how great must be the emotion that could make this man, educated in a hard school, break down before an enemy. And he reflected upon what a strange thing a human being was. Here was a man who would literally allow his throat to be cut before he would display cowardice by bargaining for it but to have his precious collection of glass-birds threatened—' Green shrugged. "'Why try to understand it? The only thing to do was to use whatever came his way.' "'Very well. If you wish to save them, you must do this.' And he detailed exactly the duke's moves and orders for the next ten minutes. He thereupon made him swear by the most holy oaths and upon his family's name, and by the honor of the founder of his family, that he would not betray Green. To make sure, added the earthman, I shall take the Exorata with me. Once I know your word is good, I'll take steps to see that it is returned undamaged to you. Can't I depend on that? breathed the duke hoarsely, rolling his big brown eyes. Yes, I will contact Zingaro, business agent of the Thieves' Guild, and he will return it to you, for a compensation, of course. But before we conclude this bargain, you must swear that you will not harm Amra, my wife, nor any of her children, nor confiscate her business, but will behave toward her as if this had never happened." The duke swallowed hard, but he swore. Green was happy, because though he was going to desert Amra, he was at least ensuring her future. It was a long, long hour later that Green came out of his hiding-place inside a large closet in the Duke's apartment. Even though the Duke had sworn the holiest of oaths, he was as treacherous as any of the barbarians on this planet, and that was very treacherous indeed. Green had stood behind the door, sweating and listening to the loud and sometimes incoherent conversation taking place between the Duke, his soldiers, and the Duchess. The Duke was a good actor for he convinced everybody that he had escaped from the mad slave Green, had seized a sword, and forced him to make a running broad jump from the balcony railing. Of course, several guardsmen had seen a large, man-sized object hurtle from the balcony and fall with a loud splash into the moat below. There was no doubt that the slave must have broken his back when he struck the water, or else he had been knocked out and then drowned. Whatever had happened, he had not come out." Green, his ear against the door, could not help smiling at this, despite the tension. He and the duke had combined forces to heave out a wooden statue of the god Zusupater, weighted with iron dishes tied to it so that it wouldn't float. In the moonlight, and the excitement, the idol must have looked enough like a falling man to deceive anybody. The only one seemingly not satisfied was Zuni she raised every kind of hell she knew, behaved in a most undignified manner, screeched at her husband because his bloodthirstiness and lack of restraint had robbed her of the exquisite tortures she'd planned for the slave who had attempted to dishonor her. The duke, his face getting redder and redder, had suddenly bellowed out at her to quit acting like a goddamned it and go at once to her apartments. To show that he meant what he said, he ordered several soldiers to escort her. Zuni, however, was too stupid to see how perilous was her situation, how near the headsman's axe. She raved on until the Duke gave a sign, and two soldiers seized her elbows—at least Green supposed they did—for she yelled at them to take their dirty hands off her, and propelled her out of the rooms. Even then it took some time before the Duke could close the doors on his last guest the little ruler opened the door. In his hand he held a priest's green robe, the sacerdotal hexagonal spectacles, and a mask for the lower part of the face. The mask was customarily worn when a monk was on a missionary for a high dignitary. During the time the face was covered, the monk was under a vow not to speak to anyone until he had reached the person for whom he had a message. Thus Green would not be bothered with any embarrassing questions. He put on the robe, spectacles, and mask, threw the hood over his head, and placed the glass exorader inside his shirt. His loaded pistol he kept up one capacious sleeve, holding it with the other hand. "'Remember,' said the duke anxiously, as he opened the door and peered out to see if anybody was on the staircase,—' "'Remember that you must take every precaution against damaging the exoroter. Tell Zingaro that he must at once pack it in a chest filled with silks and sawdust, so it won't break. I will die a thousand deaths until it comes back once again to my collection. And I,' thought Green, "'will die a thousand deaths until I get safely out of your reach, out of the city, and far away on a wind-roller.'" He promised again that he would keep his word, as well as the duke kept his, but that he would also take every measure to insure against treachery. Then he slipped out and closed the door. He was on his own until he boarded the Bird of Fortune. End of chapter 7 through 9